0: now. We are ready for chapter 6. However, before we get into chapter 6, there's one part of 5 that I just always thought was so cool because nobody can open the scroll. And and there's actually weeping in heaven because nobody can open the scroll. Well, the scroll is the, the, the revelation of next things it's it's explaining it's unfolding god's plan and those in heaven know that the plan is the culmination of redemption if you will god has from the from the fall god has put into place i would even say before creation he has established a plan of redeeming, of buying back, of, of restoring humanity. All right? And it is when, the, when, when you finally get to open the scroll, the beings in heaven know that that means we are finally beginning the end so we can finish the plan. All right? But there's nobody who can open the scroll. And so there's weeping. And, and who, who can open the scroll? Who, who's, going to, who's going to do this? Uh, uh, and let me see if I can find it real quick. Here, one of the elders in verse 5 of chapter 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Here is the lion of the tribe of Judah. I love that Old Testament reference to Messiah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king, he is the mighty one, he is the powerful one. So they reference they make a reference to him as the lion. And then verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And it is the Lamb who steps forward and receives the scroll. And they sing, worthy is the Lamb. I love that picture because it helps us understand Jesus Christ. He is the awesome, powerful, mighty Lion of the tribe of Judah and is at the very same time the sacrificial lamb who was slain for us. The lion and the lamb both are seen in Messiah. They both make up part of God's plan in redeeming us. I just think that's an awesome part of that picture and I I wanted uh, wanted to review that with you and start there. So the lamb has received the scroll, and uh, there is actually rejoicing. They fall down and worship him. And now chapter 6 at verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. As we get into... um, Chapter 6, you're going to see that step by step, the lamb is going to open one of the seven seals. Remember the book or the scroll is bound by seven seals. He's going to break one, and that is going to reveal part of the plan. He'll break another, and that's going to reveal the next part of the plan. When he gets to the seventh seal, the seventh seal is actually the seven trumpets. In other words, when they read from the scroll, I think there's something majestic that takes place. They are not so much reading words as it is when they get to that section of the scroll John sees the images. He sees what happens. Instead of just hearing words about it, it unfolds before his eyes. Um, It's uh, it's not like any kind of reading you and I have ever experienced. And so each time he opens a a seal, John sees something happen. And when he opens the last seal, the seventh seal, the seventh seal is seven trumpets. And each of those trumpets unfolds to tell a part of the story. When he gets to the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet is seven bowls. And the the bowl is, there, there are maybe better words for it, but a The bowl is what you're picturing as a bowl. It's a container. And you can think of it in terms of God has wrath in here and he's going to pour it out. Okay. And there are seven bowls. Now, we can can look at the seven seals that take us to the seven trumpets that take us to the seven bowls as a very in-depth, description of the tribulation, the seven-year time in which God brings judgment on the earth, judgment on the world. Uh, there, is, uh, there has been rejection of God, and so he brings judgment. Now, as we get into this, it's, it's, there are some terrible things that happen. And as you read, as you hear there may be a tendency for us to say, how could a loving God do this to people? Because what we're about to read is awful stuff. So let me set the stage in this way. Don't think about how could God do this to people. Instead understand that scripture tells us that right now currently God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit is restraining evil forces. In the end basically what he does is stop restraining them. This is not not best seen as an angry God throwing a temper tantrum. This is best seen as a just God carrying out judgment. And the way he carries out that judgment is, he says, I have protected you long enough. Now it's time, world, for you to experience the seriousness of your sin, of your rebellion." Does that ring true? Does that make sense? Okay. That's that's what we're about to experience. The interesting thing for me in the structure of the book is a vast majority of the book of Revelation covers seven years. Almost the whole book is the tribulation time. And then we finally get to, at the end, we finally get to the battle of Armageddon. Jesus comes back. There's a victory and all is well in the end. As we, uh, another thing that I wanted you to see as we open each of the seven seals, there is a, especially these first four, let me, let me say not the seven, but the four, the first four seals. There is a pattern that we're going to see every time. They're going to open the seal and then an elder will say, come. You remember there are four Elders in, in Scripture, and uh, you remember one, one kind of looks like the, the, the ox, and one kind of looks like the, the eagle, and one looks like man, and one looks like uh, the lion, right? Representing creation, domesticated animals, wild animals, flying animals, and man. So representing all of creation. They surround the throne. When the Lamb, when Jesus, probably shouldn't use that term because that was his name while he was on earth, but when the Son of God, when Christ breaks a seal, one of the elders says, Come, and that then brings on a horseman. We see this pattern in all of the first four seals. By the way, when we get to hearing the elder say, come, don't misunderstand that with other times in Revelation where some being, someone would say, come, meaning, come, Lord Jesus. Please come quickly. In this case, the elders are not calling to Jesus. He's right there. They are calling these these horsemen forward. Okay? Now, let me show you how that unfolds. Let's review verse 1. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. We're going to see four horsemen. These four horsemen are different colors. The first one is white. Then we'll see a red one, then a black one, and then a, there's a better word for this, but we're going to use the word pale, and we'll get. I'll explain that in a little bit. The first one is a white horseman. Now, these four horsemen do not represent individuals. They represent forces or... Um, human experiences, if you will. And we're going to see how that unfolds with each one. The first one, the white horse, if you notice it says his rider had a bow. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three interpretations. One, I disagree with completely. The second one, I'm 70% sure is accurate. And the third one, I'm 30% really interested in the possibility. <laughs> Does that make sense? The first one, some people say that the white, the, 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 the white horseman on the white horse represents Jesus Christ. The reason for that, and, and I can understand the reasoning, in chapter 19 at verse 11. Jesus is, or I need to say the word Christ, is represented, he is seen riding a white horse. That's when Jesus returns, victorious, the the powerful Lord returning to gain victory, to defeat the enemies. The reason I don't think this is that. Is because right here, Christ is the Lamb who is breaking the seal. So he can't be the horseman and the Lamb at the same time. Is he here or is he there? Beyond that, um, the word that says he has a crown, this word is not diadem, it's not the Greek word that means the crown of royalty. Later, when we see Christ come on a white horse, that is the Greek word diadem, the crown of royalty. This one, you'll notice, it says that he, was, he has a crown that he was given. Suggesting and meaning, the word actually means, the crown that they give the, the guy who runs the race and wins. It's the crown that the judge gave him because he won a race. He's the victor. Okay? Okay. So I don't, I, I don't think that, that this is Jesus. Also, here the writer has a bow. When Jesus returns in 19, he has a great sword. So I, I don't think it's Jesus. Now, another interpretation, the one that I've held to for most of my, my ministry, and I'm 70% here still, is that the white horseman on a white horse represents a false peace. It represents peace that will come. Now, I'll explain false in a minute. It's a peace that will come. Many folks determined that based on the fact that he's carrying a bow with no arrows. I don't know if you caught that when we read it, but it said he had a bow and a crown but it didn't mention arrows that's that's not a real strong argument for me personally because there are times in Scripture where especially the Old Testament where it refers to a bow and the arrows are just assumed but a stronger argument is when we look at uh, what the Old Testament teaches about the way the Antichrist works Larry covered some of this last week. When you look at what the Old Testament teaches about the way the Antichrist works, he comes promising peace. As a matter of fact, he actually forms some kind of treaty with Israel in which that peace is, is agreed upon. And if you can imagine... Things are going to get worse from here until tribulation time. I mean, I I just believe that. I think that's the point of the beginning of of what we call the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. I think it's saying that things are going to get worse until we get to the tribulation time. So people are going to get even more and more angry. We're going to have battles and wars and rumors of wars all leading up to this time. So imagine... As things get worse and worse and worse and worse, what if there was a person who could promise peace in the Middle East? The world would make that guy a hero. If you can bring peace, wow, we will definitely follow you. And he comes and he promises peace and there is peace. But it's a false peace because what he's doing is he's lulling people into a false sense of security. Because once he has gained power after that promise of worldwide peace, he gains power. Once he has power, he uses that power against Israel and thereby really against the whole world. That is the Antichrist. With that interpretation the white horseman on the white horse is that piece that comes first that I call a false piece because it's it's really just a trap setting the stage to come down on everybody. Okay? Now, one more idea that I've just recently been studying, and I think this is interesting. It's interesting to me. In that Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus tells the folks that the end is not going to come until the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the world. What if the rider on the white horse is the same color and the same, very similar to Christ on purpose? What if the rider on the white horse represents the presentation of the gospel of Christ to the world. That comes first. And then all the other bad stuff that we're about to read happens. Like I say, I'm only 30% there. But I do think that's an interesting thought because scripture says that has to happen before the tribulation starts so it very well could be the presentation of the gospel okay. well the in the old testament you can find many references to the bow just meaning strength and there is strength in the gospel and again the bow has no arrows and so he's not doing harm yeah larry okay. <laughs> push push me back to the 70 away from the 30 <laughs> I think it's the Antichrist. I think it comes with a uh, false uh, sense of security, peace, etc., cetera, et cetera, so, yep. If you look at world history that's happened uh, before our lifetime, that's exactly what Hitler did in Europe. He created peace through the whole European continent. 1938, he was declared Times man of the year because he'd make peace with everybody. Yeah. And to gain power. Yeah, there's some really... Not of how it. Yeah, there's some really interesting parallels there. You're, you're exactly right. Yeah. One other thing I'd like to point out, Zachariah has the same colors and stuff, but it assigns a direction. The light is to the West. Most of uh, Western civilization stuff has come under, in the Antichrist, it's going to be uh, the Antichrist. It plays out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did have that note as well. What what Larry is referring to is Zechariah chapter six. If you want to go back and look at those four horses, there are four colors of in in, in horses. The horses there are pulling chariots, and they, it describes those four horses in Zechariah six. And it is very helpful there. It really is. So we have the uh, we have the white horse. Most likely being the, um, the, the false peace that comes first as um, the Antichrist begins to lull people to sleep, basically. Uh, and that's interesting because the way that's going to work is you're going to have political and religious leaders, both, who are saying... Look, God's working. We we have peace. We have peace. We have peace. And we have to be careful when that happens, because that is going to be reminiscent of the time of Jeremiah. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing that U version, uh, read through the Bible in one year thing. I don't I don't I listen to I, I use the audio part, so I listen while I'm driving. And this past week. Uh, we've been in that section where there are prophets who are telling um, Jerusalem and those folks, hey, peace, man, peace. It's all okay. Nothing. We're all good, you know? And Jeremiah's over here saying, repent or God's going to kill us. God's going to hurt us. God's going to, you know, we're all going to die. And these people are saying, oh, peace, peace. So you're in Jerusalem at that time. Who are you going to listen to? We, we're going we're gonna to lean toward the guy who's saying God loves us, everything's nice and sweet, and we're going to have peace. And um, so the, there's a little bit of a, of a correlation there in that that's similar to what we're going to experience just before everything goes absolutely nuts. Who has Jeremiah 14, verses 13 and 14? Would you read that please, sir? That's alright. Okay. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, Behold, the prophet said to them, You shall not see sore, nor shall you have pen. but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophecy lies in my name. I have not sent them This thing in the state of their heart. All right. That is God's response. Yes, these guys over here are saying, peace, peace, all is well. And God says, hey, I didn't send those guys. They're talking off the top of their heads, not from me. And y'all are about to find out how serious I am about this. That's how he responded in Jeremiah's time. Did I, did I give anybody 1 Thessalonians 5.3? I honestly don't remember if that was one of them. 1 Thessalonians 5 3. I think, as, as uh, m- many people do, I think that's referring to what we're talking about right here. That there will be a day when everybody says, Peace. We're cool. Everything's good. Look at how great everything is. And then, all of a sudden, there will be great travail or tribulation. Yeah. I think Paul is talking about this very thing. So we have the the white horse. Um, let's see, verse three. He opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, "Come," again. The way I read that, the creatures are uh, summoning the, the horse, the horseman. Verse 4, and out came another horse, bright red. Just in general, in literature and in art, what, what does red usually represent? What do you think of when you think of the, word, the, the, the color red? Fire and anger and, and blood. That's, that's it. I, those are three excellent answers. And because red in, in this case is a representation of war. We go from peace, which again is a false peace. It's a false sense of security that is led by the Antichrist. And we go from that to blood red war, fire, blood, anger, this is war. The, um, he comes out in a bright red. Look at the rest of, of uh, verse 4. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Don't run past that word permitted too quickly. That is a powerful word. Yes, this one brings or this is the representation of the war that is going to take place after that time of of false peace. There is a terrible war, but remember, that horseman was permitted. God is still God. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. And He is the one who permits the evil to do its thing. He has so far in my, in, in my reading, he has so far protected man from these things. Now he permits it because he can use it. Its writer was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. There's tremendous power in, in war. And this, these, this, is not, this is not a war in my, in my mind. These are battles that take place in, in homes, battles that take place between nations, and wars that rage all over the world. The entire world is at war in one way or another. Um, did I give anybody Daniel 8 and 24? Thank you, please. Daniel <laughs> 8 His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. And prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Again, this is a description of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is is leading through all of this. And he is first going to promise this this peace. But then based on Daniel 8, he is going to lead this awful war. When it says that he can can take out mighty men, the mighty men were the warriors. He's saying that he's going to be a, a, a military powerful leader. And he's going, to, he's going to lead the forces that will destroy, kill many, many, many people. So this is, a, this is an awful time, and it's a terrible transition from white to red, from peace to war. that down there yet? It depends on if you talk to me or Larry. <laughs> The, uh, there, there's a time of peace it leads to war. Now, what happens in war? People die. And that's the next logical step here. After war comes the black horse. But John on the on the- Actually, I jumped ahead anyway, so go ahead. I think hate in any time, in any place, hate destroys instead of builds. That's what we're going to see. Yeah. I uh, jumped ahead of myself a little bit anyway. What happens is the, when there's war, there's not enough resources. There's not enough food, not enough people to grow food, not enough ways to get. And so you have famine. Black is famine, which is in verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. So how do I, how, how, why do we say it's famine? The next verse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Remember, folks in John's time weren't familiar with cash registers. They, they used the scales. Money actually had a particular weight. You'd put a particular weight on this side, and then you'd put the grain on this side. And once they balanced, then you had paid the appropriate price for that grain. Okay? So he's carrying a pair of scales in his hand. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. A denarius was basically what a day laborer would get paid for one day's work. You'd get a denarius for one day of work. It says that for that one day's wage, you could buy, where where did it go? Uh, You could buy a quart of wheat. Now, a quart of wheat is not actually enough even for one person to have a healthy diet and survive for long, much less be able to provide for the family. And so this is is the picture, that you're going to have a person who's going to work all day they're going to take what they earned that day, and it is not going to buy enough food for the family for one day. And you can imagine that you can't do that very many days till you got major problems. You look on there and you see, well, that denarius buys more barley than it does wheat. Well, the reason for that is barley's cheaper because it doesn't sustain you very well. It's not enough food, nutrients, to keep you strong and healthy. So whether you're buying one or the other, the point is the same. There won't be enough food to go around. Food supplies have been destroyed. Those who took care of food production have have been killed, don't have any way to move food from one place to another. And so famine sets in. And when famine sets in, people die. That's where I got ahead of myself. The last horse. (laughs) Yeah, oil and wine. Again, two interpretations. One is everybody had oil and wine. They were staples. That was how you basically survived. Um, Wine was not only drunk to to drink but it also purified the water oil was used in everything for cooking so the 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 warning is any little bit of oil or wine you have you better be careful you can't afford to spill it you can't afford to you know to waste it some here see and i i just can't find it and i i just don't see it here some say that during the famine, there will be a few rich people who have oil and wine. I just don't think that's what he's saying. I, I, th- I think we're putting in our politics into it when we, when we see that. I, I think what he's saying is you're not going to be able to afford any food, and the little bit of basic staples that you have, you better be careful with. Okay? Okay yeah y yes there will be definitely an economic breakdown ah, uh, you're good. <laughs> That is interesting. I never knew there was a connection in those, the words of war and bread. But you can see the logical progression. There's peace, there's war, economic breakdown, famine, nobody has what they need. Um, you know, even, even in our own U.S. history, there, was, there were times where folks had to, to ration, right, um, just to survive, uh, so the nation could survive. And that's what we experience. And then there will be plenty of folks who don't survive this, and and the pale horse is dead. Was there one other, Bill, was it you, one other reaction? Okay. Are we ready to go to the last horse? Okay. The fourth horse. Uh, Give me a number, seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. Come. And I looked and behold a pale horse. Now that word pale, I think for our, for our understanding that's a, that's a good um, definition of it or translation of it. The word actually describes this, this weird sick color that is a combination of yellowy green. Ashen would be good. Ashen would be good. And you can imagine that color, that ashen look. You've seen a dead body. Imagine the decay that sets in very quickly when the entire world has been at war, economic breakdown, nobody has food. Rats are everywhere. There are dead people everywhere. The color is the color of death. It's just that pale, yellowy, green, ashen. So this is the color. A pale horse. Its rider's name was Death. Just in case we weren't quite up with the, the story and, and just to make sure we didn't argue and debate over too much, he told us the writer is death. So you don't have to argue about that one. The writer's death and Hades follows him. Now, Hades, often we hear the term used for hell. Hades is not hell, especially not in this context. Hades is the grave. It's, it's what follows death. When people die, we put them in a grave. Here is death followed by the grave. It Makes sense, right? Uh, what's the creature uh, covered in black, got the big sith? Grim Reaper. Grim Reaper. So you got, the, you got the Grim Reaper and, and the grave digger death and Hades Um, and they were given authority notice again given authority God is God God is sovereign God's in control from the beginning to the end God is in control don't ever forget that because as we get into some of these chapters some of this stuff is really scary weird stuff don't ever forget God is in control They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. By the way, that's where I got the idea of rats, wild beasts of the earth. They were given authority to kill with war, with famine pestilence and wild beasts the the diseases that take place when there are dead bodies all around and the wild beasts that start showing up when there are dead bodies all around a fourth of the earth is killed so now they're saying what do we have like 6.2 billion people in the world something like that So imagine somewhere around 1.5, 1.6 billion people are killed. And this is, by the way, early in the seven years. So the horsemen demonstrate for us a terrible, awful time. By the way, were there any other verses? Does somebody have Matthew Matthew 24-7? I'm sorry, I skipped you a while ago. Matthew 24, 7. This is Jesus telling the disciples what's going to happen, how to get ready, how to anticipate, what to expect. And in his description, he describes war and famine. And so the the unfolding of the four horsemen fit what Jesus told them ahead of time that they should expect.